Our Father, we come before you this morning giving you all the glory for the great things you have done and are doing and will do in our lives through your church that you have graciously allowed us to be a part of. As we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life and a better life in this world as we live for your glory. Help us to do that more today as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we come this morning to the conclusion of our study on giving. And amen, yeah. Because we're convicted, right? I want this to be over. No. <laughs> it's amazing, though. I mean, we go through this and we look at it and you think, oh, it's giving. It's like, okay, we know a few things there, a few parts. But it ends up being more and more and more as you go through 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But it's amazing how in God's goodness, he knows our heart and he addresses all those little things that we forget about until it comes time to give. And his word is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. But we're going to finish up today our last few points on giving as an act of grace so that we can grow in Christ-likeness and grow in our giving and really live out these truths that God has called us to. And give not grudgingly, not under compulsion, but with a heart that God has changed and we have purpose to give for His glory and to meet the needs of others. And that's our memory verse, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do... Just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's the one you always want to come back to as your kind of home base when you think about giving. Well, how much should I give? What should I do? What's the question? You come back to that. And that's the simple summary of all of it. You must do what you purposed in your heart. No set amount. Not grudgingly. Not under compulsion. We're going to look at more of that today. But God loves a cheerful giver. However you can give cheerfully for the glory of God. And then if you can't remember all of those things from that verse, then you go back to where that verse was in 2 Corinthians 9. And you work through there in 2 Corinthians 8. And you see those things again and again. And if you forget, I have, as I promised, put this little insert. I keep that in my Bible. When uh, Rod asked me about something to teach, I actually handed him this. I said, what about this? And so... That's how that came about. But I do, I keep it in my Bible because giving comes up a lot in counseling and talking with people and small group and prayers like, ah, oh, you know, this and that as people struggle. And so we want to be able to minister God's word to them faithfully and effectively and to just help them to see what God has said about it so that they can work in their hearts and to clarify some of that misconfusion. So that's there. It's available if you want that. And then we have our notes that we're going to go through as well. If you don't have those, they're on the back table back there. And so we have been studying so far the evidences of giving as an act of grace. When we give regularly and individually and in spite of difficult circumstances and joyfully and generously and proportionately and sacrificially and willingly, when we first give ourselves to Christ and as an expression of love. And then last week, by way of review, we give as an act of grace when we give inspired by Jesus giving. He says there in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty, we, he, his poverty, we might become rich. And so believers should give in a way that reflects the grace that Christ has shown to us. 
And we also saw that we give as an act of grace when we give reliably, from 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 10, and 11, 10 through 12 there. Paul says, you desire to do it, and now finish doing it. And so, we found the principle that when believers commit to giving, we should fulfill our commitment. Because our commitment is first and foremost to God. We have purposed in our heart to God to give, and now we follow up with that. And we'll fulfill our commitment, just as the Corinthians there. And then, we give as an act of grace when we give inequality. And we're not talking about everyone being financially equal in the church, as it says in 2 Corinthians 8, 13, and 15. But at the present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs, so that their abundance also may be a supply for your, na- your need. And by this, there's a way of equality. And the principle then is Christians should give to meet others' present needs, knowing that God might use them to meet our future needs. Because it's all God's and in his economy, sometimes he gives more to this and less to this and more to this and less to this so that we can practice this very principle. And so that's how he takes care of those things and helps us to do that. And then we saw that we give as an act of grace when we give confidently. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 24, you see how Paul had put together certain men, godly men, qualified men, to take care of this offering. And he says there, we are taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. And so he is being very careful that believers should give trusting the leadership to distribute the offerings with integrity. Because we have found that some people will struggle with this. If we don't know where it's going or what's happening or we're concerned or things like that. And it would hinder someone from giving. But God addresses that as well. What a wonderful blessing. And so we can give confidently, trusting the leadership to distribute the offerings with integrity. And Paul addressed that. And so our outline, as we said, keeping things in context of the big picture of what is happening here. We saw that the Macedonians' example of grace giving in chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5. And then the Corinthians' instructions, right, in 6 through 15. Then we saw just then the leader's accountability. And today we're going to look at the last two aspects of the context of this letter, which is the Corinthians' encouragement and the believer's blessings for grace giving. And so we want to end on a positive note, and that's it. The blessings, right? What are the blessings of giving? You've been beating us up about these things for five weeks here, and so now... What are the encouragements and the blessing? But most of us have been encouraged because we're practicing these things and we're thinking about it. And you've told me again and again how just at the right time, God has put the opportunity before you to give to someone or to meet a need. And the principle was there and he communicated that. And it's like, oh, that's what I should do. That's very helpful. So God is good in providing just what we need when we need it. So today we're going to look at that encouragement and we're going to find that giving is an act of grace when we give exemplary. When we give exemplary. And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 now, in verses 1 through 4, and Paul writes this. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. And so he says there, your zeal has stirred up most of them. 
Your desire to give in the first place, your zeal now has stirred up most of them. They were the ones in the beginning who had an op, a, a heart to give to the church in Jerusalem. Then that was communicated to the church at Macedonia. And then we get to Acts chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5. And the church of Macedonia is being a great example in their poverty and their suffering. They're willing to give joyfully and liberally and abundantly and sacrificially and all of those things. And now they're coming to pick up the gift. And some of the Macedonians may be coming with Paul. And so he wants them to be ready. Because your zeal has stirred up most of them, but... Just in case you're not ready, we want to make sure that we don't ruin that effect, if you will, right? They may be coming, and if they see me and I have to go around to your house like we talked about before and pick up the offering, then they may have said, you know, Paul, were they really zealous about this? Did you dupe us into giving and now you're just going to do that at all the churches? That could hurt the unity, that could hurt the offering, that could hurt the future of the church and giving and meeting each other's needs. And it can hurt their testimony. So Paul is really concerned about their testimony as the Corinthians and the church as a whole. That you continue to do this because you were a great example. Let's keep being that great example. And so the principle then is believers faithfully give knowing that it may impact other believers' willingness to give. Our giving may impact others' willingness to give. And it may be helpful to consider some ways that we do that because we give in private and we don't cling, play the trumpet. We don't toot our own horn in giving. We don't ring the bell and say, $2, look at that. You know, look at me, I'm giving today. We don't do that and we're supposed to not do that. We don't give for our glory, but for God's glory. But the reality is we are an example to others often. Okay? And so let's look at some of these. How our giving might be an example for other believers and churches. When our local church's needs are met. That's a simple one. We talked about giving regularly to meet the regular needs of the church, right? When we can just keep the lights on and we can pay for our pastors and we can have chairs and things like that. There are some churches who struggle today, not because of people leaving the church and their numbers are down, but because giving slowed down. And they have to let people go. Or they have to change their staff or the pastor has to go to be a tent maker. But our example of giving to meet the needs of the church is a great testimony to other churches that we are faithful to give. And remember, in the midst of COVID, things were happening and economy was a mess and people were without a work. But our giving didn't really change here. It actually increased, I hear. That's a great testimony of God's faithfulness in this church. And also, when our church's needs are exceeded, when we can support more missionaries or short-term trips or do new ministries or do things like that. That's a great testimony of God working in us and an example for others to follow. When we put something in the offering plate, that's an example, right? Well, you know what? Whether we like it or not, people see it. Somebody sees it. You pass the plate down, somebody puts something in we're not doing it to be thought highly of. We're not, you know, putting all the you know, hundreds on top. So it's like, hey, look at this, you know, and anything like that, unfolding our check, count those zeros, right? No, we do it discreetly. But the reality is people see it, don't they? Let's, let's admit people see that. And so that's a testimony. Well, this person is following those things and they give regularly. I don't know how much they give. I don't care how much they give, but they give, right? And they give regularly. That's a great testimony to others in the church. And... To our family, right? 
Our family, our kids, we're teaching them how to worship through giving. Like one kid, he was in church and he saw his dad giving something in the offering. And then after church, dad was serving roast preacher for lunch. And he was complaining about the service. And he was complaining about the air conditioning. Complaining about the pews being too hard. And all of those things. And his son looked up and said, Dad, what would you expect for $5? (laughs) But, you know, they're watching. And so we're, we're, we're careful to practice those things. And someone even told me, even while we're in the midst of this study, he's like, wow, you know, I think about giving as an act of worship, and, you know, and I started doing it online and stuff like that. Well, maybe I should just start writing a check because it's an act of worship. You know, that's up to you. It's not right or wrong one way or the other, as we've said. But that's an, an example for someone, just, just giving, just doing that. Other ways, when we participate in observable giving opportunities, like Emmanuel's Child. This is an observable giving opportunity. You have to go and you pick up the ornament and you take it home and you bring it back and you give them your check and this is observable. Hey, look at that guy. He got one. That one guy got six. Why'd you get so many? What are you doing? And we talk about those things and it's not for our own glory, but it's like, this is an example. I want to do that too. That's a great idea. Okay? So there are observable giving opportunities that we have outside of our regular passing the plate, right? And also... When we share our testimony of following God's stewardship principles. You may be counseling someone on on how to make a budget. Or you may be teaching those things. Or you can just glorify God. Like, wow, God has provided so abundantly for us. Because we try to follow his stewardship principles. Not for us to gain more. But look what God has done so that we can give more. As we will see. So there are a lot of different ways that our example... We can be an example to other believers and to other churches of our giving. So we can give as an act of grace when we give exemplary. We don't do it for the purpose of being seen, but we do it and are seen. And there's some truths to remember that, right? Philippians 3.17. Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the power you have in us. Well, how do I give? Well, I need to see someone's example. I need to do those things, right? 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Be an example in your giving. Hebrews 13.7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. God has called us to be looking for people to imitate. And we are to know that people are watching us. And so we need to imitate Christ and follow Christ so that we can say, follow me as I follow Christ in our giving and different things as well. Okay? So those are the things. Your zeal can stir up someone else. You can give exemplary. So believers give knowing that it may impact others' willingness to give. Okay? So it's not just about us and God. Giving is also an act of grace. When we give unhindered by covetousness. And we see there in chapter 9 and verse 5. So he says there. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren. That they would go ahead to you. And arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. So that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift. And not affected by covetousness. Now this is still encouraging. And it's still a blessing. Because he's saying there. You already said you were going to give this bountiful gift. Your previously promised bountiful gift that you arranged beforehand. They're coming to pick that up, but I just want to make sure that it's not hindered by covetousness. 
And that should catch our attention, right? He just puts that little thing at the end. It's not hindered by covetousness. Not affected by covetousness. What is covetousness? It's not a good word. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet, right? And so it's very important. What does it have to do with giving? It has everything to do with giving. So let's look at a definition of covetousness. Several different ways to look at it here. Covetousness is being marked by an inordinate desire for wealth or possessions, and in particularly for another's possessions. A yearning to have what someone else has. Grasping to acquire more and hold on to it at the expense of others. It is rooted in selfishness and self-centeredness. And so, we think about all those aspects of what covetousness is and how we want to give unhindered by covetousness, then our principle can be, believers should give not concerned about what we might lose, but about what others might benefit. We're not thinking about ourselves and what we might lose and what we might not be able to have We're thinking about others and how they might benefit. And so how can we know when our giving might be hindered by covetousness? Well, we can contrast a few things that we've studied so far with covetousness. Our giving is hindered by covetousness. It's instead of being generous, we are greedy. Instead of being open-handed, we are tight-fisted. Instead of giving liberally, we are stingy. Instead of giving bountifully, we give miserly. All those things may be evidence that our giving is hindered by covetousness. So those are some words that we can understand, but what does it look like? That's important for me to understand because we all struggle with covetousness. That's why God addressed it. And so I really want to know. So here are some things that what giving hindered by covetousness might look like. If a need arises in the church and we always leave it to someone else to meet it, or we rarely, if ever, think about what we might give to meet that need. The need comes up and we just, no, it's not for me. Next one comes up, that's not for me. If a need arises in the church, the first thing we think about is what I might lose rather than what others might benefit from my giving. That's the first thing I think about. Well, oh, may not be able to get this, get that, do whatever, right? If we keep our money for what we might want instead of giving it to meet someone's known need. Nothing wrong with saving, nothing wrong with those things like that, planning for the future, but if I have it and someone needs it, as the Proverbs say, Don't tell them to come tomorrow, right? Because when somebody has a need and I have it, there is no tomorrow. If we never give. Our giving may be hindered by covetousness. And those kind of hit home, but they should. 
Because that's what God speaks about over and over and over and over again. Don't covet. Don't be greedy. Be generous and ready to share. But, there are some helpful things to remember. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. What giving unhindered by covetousness looks like. This is what it is, right? We're giving sacrificially and willingly and joyfully and cheerfully and all those things and in despite of difficult circumstances, right? Deuteronomy 5, 21, he says there, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That kind of sums it up, right? If you covet anything that belongs to your neighbor and those around you, you're coveting. And that's not what God wants us to do. And then he said to them in 12, Luke 12, 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. The same word for covetousness there. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In the context there of building bigger barns to store things and not being rich towards God. In Colossians 3, 1 to 5, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on thing, the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is covetousness, same word there, which amounts to idolatry. So he's saying, equating covetousness with idolatry. And that's an easy connection. I'm worshiping stuff. One man said it well, he says, if you have the opportunity and the resources to give when you know God wants you to participate and you don't, you might be worshiping an idol instead of God. Your idol may be clothes, home furnishings, electronics, recreational gear, a car, a vacation, or whatever else. None of these things is intrinsically bad, but if they hinder or prevent you from worshiping God through generous giving, they might be the idols of covetousness. But Christians, like the Macedonians, we are to turn from worshiping idols to worship the one true and living God and live for his son, Jesus Christ, as we await his return. We would be kind of like the churches in Acts, right? Who turn from God, turn, turn to God from idols to serve the one true and living God. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property, and nobody had any needs because they took care of each other. Instead of coveting other people's things, and you have land and I don't have any land, and looking at those things like that, they were all willing to sell it and give to meet the needs, unhindered by covetousness. And so if we desire to live for Christ and be freed from covetousness, we really need to examine ourselves in light of this. And allow God to expose it so that we can confess it. We can repent of it. We can replace it with Christ-like, generous, sacrificial, willing, giving to meet needs. What a blessing that God has given that to us.
But the Corinthians were ready. They had the bountiful gift, right? They had promised it before. They were going to be ready. And Paul just wants to make sure that their testimony is intact. And he goes on. There's our summary of that. To the believers' blessings of giving as an act of grace in verses 6 through the end of the chapter. And we give as an act of grace when we give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Back in verse 6, he says, Now this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, right? And it's helpful in this verse, since it's going to be our memory verse, and we kind of go back to that, to understand some of the terms that are in there. He talks about a lot lot of different things. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. And so we'll look at some of these words in particular, some definitions there. Purposed or decided. It means to reach a decision beforehand. Right? And so we are purposing in our heart to give. Right? So when the opportunity comes up, we're ready. We have purposed in our heart to give something, right? Each, we said before. It is saying we have decided on an amount to give. Whatever amount that is. Right? If you want to give like Zacchaeus, it's 50%, right? If you want to give, if you want to give 10%, give 10%. Not required in the New Testament. But if that's what you purposed in your heart, great. If you want to give $5, fine. Whatever it is. Whatever you purpose in your heart. But purpose to give something, right? We have planned and decided beforehand on an amount to give. And then grudgingly or reluctantly, the word here has the idea of pain of mind or spirit, grief or sorrow. I'm giving grudgingly. It's killing me to give. That's not cheerful. That's not how God wants us to give. But some people have tried to give that way. And then we have the word compulsion, which has the idea of being under pressure or a reluctant obligation, resigning to the inevitable, right? All right, the church keeps asking. All the church ever does is ask for money, so I might as well just give some. That'll make them happy. Get them off my back. No, God says, each one must do his purpose in his heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, not if it's killing you, not if you think that that's all the church ever asked for and you just want to get them off your back. No. God loves a cheerful giver, right? And the word there is literally transliterated hilarious. Now, don't be going crazy when you give and acting stupid. That's not what we're talking about here. But, you know, when you hear a joke and you're like, oh, that was hilarious, you just spontaneously kind of laugh and you kind of can't stop laughing for a minute. It's that idea, right? I spontaneously want to give. I'm excited about giving. I'm noticeably happy and optimistic. Likely to dispel gloom or worry, right? Yay, another opportunity to give. Because I'm prepared. I want to give as Christ gave. I want to be willing and generous. I am looking for opportunities to give. And so when it comes up, yeah, great. I was waiting for this. I'm ready. What a blessing. So that may help us to see that we must do as we have purposed in our heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And so our little summary then would be, a Christian's countenance in giving should be happy and optimistic, having already decided to please God by meeting others' needs. We've already decided to please God by meeting other needs. God loves a cheerful giver. That's quite a blessing. To know that God who owns it all and has entrusted some of his riches to me to meet the needs of others and further his kingdom, he is especially pleased and actually says he loves it when his children give cheerfully. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. Just because they have purposed in their heart to do what God has asked them to do. Because they want to, even if they hadn't known that this was in the Bible. I want to help people. We have that heart. We have that compassion of Christ. We have a new heart that changes our mind about giving instead of being covetousness. So, Christians' countenance in giving should be happy and optimistic, having already decided to please God by meeting others' needs. Isn't that amazing? I have already decided to please God. How am I going to do that? By meeting other needs. I'm just waiting for the opportunity. That's great. And giving cheerfully is an act of grace from a heart of faith. Now you go back to chapter 9 and verse 6 and it says, Now this I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He starts out by saying, look at these benefits, right? If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And it's a simple illustration, right? It's the farming illustration. If the farmer goes out there and he casts a lot of seed, he expects to have a pretty good crop. You know, if you invest a lot of money, you expect to have a pretty good return on your investment in general. If you just give a little bit, well, you know, we'll see which seeds pop up. If you invest a little bit, you're probably not going to have enough for retirement, right? If you invest in the kingdom of God bountifully, you can expect a big return. Now, that can motivate us to give cheerfully, right? Because, hey, look at this. I've given and I gave a lot and, and God has blessed that and this is wonderful and I like how this works, right? Because if I give a little and then it doesn't really, nothing really happens that great, then it's like, okay, I've got to give again grudgingly and under compulsion. But the Corinthians haven't given anything yet. They're not cheerful because they have seen the blessing. And so giving cheerfully is an act of grace from a heart of faith. They believe that God will fulfill that promise. They believe that God will supply all their needs. They believe the truths of Scripture from the Old Testament and the things that Paul has taught them about Jesus and all that already. And so then you give cheerfully. And so that corrects any misunderstanding that I give in order to receive, and that's the only way I can give cheerfully. Giving cheerfully is an act of grace from a heart of faith that trusts God to provide. Don't miss that. And that puts all the word of faith preachers and the health, wealth, and prosperity gospels, guys, to shame. It's not what it's about. So some more truths to inspire cheerful giving. 
Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And we know that Proverbs are principles, not promises, right? But they are principles that hold true in general. And according to other scripture, they hold true as well. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Need something from the New Testament? Luke chapter 6, and verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. And so those can be helpful truths to inspire us to cheerful giving, whether we have experienced the abundance of that or not. Because God has said, and we trust God, and we give cheerfully as an act of faith. And so each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A Christian's countenance in giving should be happy and optimistic, knowing that God's going to continue to provide, right? Having already decided to please God. By meeting others' needs. What a nice way to live. Isn't that great? You get up going to church thinking like that? I'll get to please God today, I hope. And then somebody teaches on giving, and then they keep coming up with new opportunities to give. Isn't that amazing how that's worked itself out this time? We give for this, we give for that, and the the manual's child, and it's like, neat. God provides the word, he works in our heart, and he provides the ability to live it out. So, nice. God is so good to us. And so giving is an act of grace when we give cheerfully. And giving is an act of grace when we give expectantly. We can give expectantly. If you look at chapter 9 and verses 8 through 11 there, we'll see that we can give expectantly because it says God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Now, we understand that some of these verses have been abused, like we said, by the uh, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel people. Like, look at this. God's able to make all graces abound to you, so always have sufficiency in everything, right? But what's it for? It's for doing good deeds. It's for furthering his kingdom. It's for us to grow in righteousness, as it says in verse 11. Now, I understand that we as Christians struggle with giving in order to receive. And we know that we should not bargain with God or look at our giving as a means of purchasing God's blessing. 
And how we are not to desire and covet material wealth as we just talked about. And how our greatest treasure is in heaven, not on earth. But when we look at this text and we read it, what is God promising? God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you will have an abundance for every good deeds. We understand that these words of God are in the immediate context of financial giving to meet needs. In the context of financial giving as an act of grace. And in the greater context of financial giving to meet the need of the church in Jerusalem. And so we don't need to over-spiritualize this passage and say, well, it's just about our blessings in heaven. No. It's about meeting financial needs today here on earth. God is talking about financial blessings and financial provision to meet financial needs. And a believer can unapologetically interpret it that way in the context in the Bible. Do you remember all the other evidences of grace that we were looking at? Evidences of giving as an act of grace? Giving regularly, giving in spite of difficult circumstances and joyfully and generously and proportionately and sacrificially and willingly and cheerfully and all of those things. God is here saying that he will supply all that a believer will need to be able to give in all of those ways previously mentioned. We understand that believers who give in these ways are not looking for those blessings God promises as a means to make them rich but as a means for them to be able to give in these ways listed even more. To be able to give even more to meet needs. To be able to be used by God even more to take care of others. To be able to express love even more through giving. To be able to give even more in spite of difficult circumstances, and joyfully and cheerfully and regularly even more. All of this because we have believed these truths that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you will have an abundance for every good deed. And trusting in these truths and giving expectantly because of these truths, believers who give in these ways see the grace this grace as a means not to get rich, but a means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, whose whole life was an expression of giving as an act of grace. There is a spiritual side. We understand that. And all of our giving as an act of grace is enabled by the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts, to give us a heart to change and want to give as an act of grace, not grudgingly or under compulsion. But don't think he's only talking about the spiritual blessing here. And so we give now, we look forward to heaven, and then we're just kind of like, well, you know, I'm just always going to be poor, and I'm always going to have to give sacrifice. I'm always going to, I'm just never going to have enough. If you do that, then you're missing the point of the passage. And you will miss the blessing that God has promised for us and how we live today. 
So you look at it and you read it and you believe it. And you live like you believe it. And you give like you believe it. So let's look at a few of the principles that we need to make sure we recognize here. God is able there, we looked at that, to make all grace. So our principle then is believers give knowing that God will always provide for us to be able to have a new car, have a new house, live comfortably, give. Believers give knowing that God will always be able to always provide for us to be able to give. Were the Macedonians in their poverty affliction able to give? Yes, joyfully, sacrificially, according to their means, beyond their ability to meet the needs, right? So here are these principles. Grace is the motive and the means for giving. Grace is the motive and the means for our giving. Our motive for giving is God's spiritual blessing in our lives, but our means for giving is God's material blessing in our lives. So it is both, but it's not just one or the other. Our motive for giving is God's spiritual blessing in our lives. He gives us the motive. He gives us the desire. But our means for giving is God's material blessing in our lives. He owns it all. And he provides so that we will be able to give from that heart that wants to give. And second, as we see there, God is able. Do we understand that? Paul is saying that God is able to do this for us. The God who is sovereign and omniscient and omnipresent and owns it all and is sovereign over the whole universe and every cattle on a thousand hills and everything that you own and every speck of dirt. He is able to do this. He is able to give you the ability and the the motive and the means to be able to meet these spiritual blessings and to give as an act of grace. And so a reluctance to give can reflect a failure to believe in God's ability to provide. And so the next time I'm concerned about this, I can come back to verse 8 and say, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Even if we have to give sacrificially and deny ourselves something. So God is able to do that, Paul says. And we have to believe that. And we resolve that God provides for us to do good deeds. Right? What he is providing for is for good deeds. God is able to make all grace abound so you have enough for every good deed that he puts before you. Doesn't mean you meet the whole thing, but you may be able to give part. Right? He is able to make sure that you are able to do the good deeds that he puts before you. And giving can demonstrate our righteousness. It says there in verse 11, right? You will be enriched with everything for all liberality. That's a nice summary statement, isn't it? He said all of those things, and he says, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. You can give generously, trusting in God, which 
through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Oh, wait, verse 10 there. Multiply, he says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched with everything for all liberality. He's going to increase the harvest of your righteousness. How does that happen? When we give, we are living out our lives. We are practicing sanctification. We are giving as Christ gave. We are growing in righteousness and we are practicing our righteousness. Now, we're not practicing our righteousness before men like the Pharisees, right? But we are practicing what God has called us to do. And so we're practicing our righteousness. We're practicing doing these things that God has changed us, our hearts, and we are growing in righteousness. He says, it will increase the harvest of your righteousness as you trust God and continue to give. And he uses an example there from the psalm, Psalm 112 and verse 9. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And here he's talking about the righteous man who is giving and he's trusting God and he's going forward. And what is the endurance of his righteousness? It is forever. We're declared righteous. We don't give to become righteous. But through giving, we grow in righteousness. And we show us that we are living out God's truths. And we are believers. And so for Paul, having all you need means having enough for every good deed God puts before you. And the more we give, the more we will be given by God to share with others. We may not have all the money that we want. But we will have all the money we need to be abundant in giving to others. You may have heard of R.G. Letourneau and his example of this. He was the guy who developed a lot of the heavy equipment to make highways and things like that. And he's a godly man and he started giving 10% of his income. And then he, God kept blessing him. God kept blessing his business. And he started giving 20% and 30%. And he got to the point where he was giving 90% and living on 10%. And someone asks him, well, how did that happen? He goes, he goes, I don't know. God keeps shoveling it in, and I keep shoveling it out, and God's just got a bigger shovel. <laughs> and he said, you cannot outgive God. Great testimony of God's faithfulness. Other testimonies of God's provision in the Bible. 1 Chronicles 29, 14. But who am I, David said, as they provided for the temple, and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Philippians 4, 18 to 20, Paul talking about the offering given to them, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think in giving according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God gets all the glory and that's our next point after this. Giving is an act of grace when we give for God to be glorified. He said it at the end of verse 11 there. 
which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your, your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. They said, they will glorify God for your giving. For meeting their needs because they know that God is the one who is working in and through you to provide it. So believers meet other believers' needs knowing that God will be glorified. Because believers are the ones who glorify God with this, right? And we see this in our lives. We have a need, we're struggling, we're suffering, something comes up. Someone brings it and we praise the Lord for his abundant provision. So a few things to consider. Meeting believers' needs produces thanksgiving to God, as it says there. Meeting believers' needs produces thanksgiving to God. If I want God to be glorified and I hear of a need, I'm going to meet that and I know they're going to thank God. I don't need the thanks. I want God to be praised. Meeting believers' needs results in God being glorified. They will glorify God. They will sing His praises. They will worship Him. Meeting believers' needs authenticates our profession of faith in God's Son. Did you see that? Verse 13, because of the proof, give, proof given by this ministry, they, the church of Jerusalem, will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. They see this as an act of obedience, proving that you're a believer. And that's also very significant because who is the gift going to? The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And this is a Gentile church in Corinth who is giving to the Jerusalem church. And they're saying, we believe these Gentiles are really saved. Because they are giving like we gave to each other in Acts when the church was first founded when God worked in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What a great authentication to them. And not only that, our giving Meeting believers' needs prompts unity, it promotes unity in God's church. Here's the Jewish church and here's the Gentile church and they're coming together and they're glorifying God for what they are doing because God is working the same way in all of their hearts. The Jews had Jesus. They bring the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles repent and believe and then they begin to live out the same truths. And the church is united. We have the same Lord. We have the same master. We all live in such a way that we will glorify our own Father in heaven, the Jew and the Gentile. It promotes unity. And then believers, meeting believers' needs generates prayers of intercession to God. So God gets all the glory. You look at that. He says in verse 14, While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. They're praying for you. They're thankful for you. They're praying that God would continue to do the work that he is doing in your heart. Continue to grow you in Christ-likeness. 
They're praying, interceding on your behalf. They have nothing to give. But they can pray. And that's a wonderful thing that enables us to give glory to God in our giving. And so we pray for each other and we pray for churches who struggle and we pray for those who give to meet our needs so that God will continue to do this great work in them because they recognize it is the grace, suppressing grace of God working in them to do it. And meeting believers' needs leads to gratefulness for God's indescribable gift, which makes it all possible. He's talking about Christ, who he gave so that we could have our greatest need met. Our need to overcome our sinfulness and our sinful flesh and our covetousness and our grudgingly, complainingly, grumbling, giving, wanting everything for ourselves. He changed us. He gave us a new life. He helped us to become like Christ and to grow in those things so that we would be generous and willing and sacrificial and helping and think of others more important than ourselves and love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, which we could not have done without him. And to have a life that is changed, that is full of contentment and joy and peace and love, which only God can give us and which we use by exemplifying giving as an act of grace. He's changed us. And I can tell you in the midst of this and studying giving and working through these things, we all will be changed a little bit now. Because some of us have still given grudgingly and complaining and under compulsion. But God is in the midst of changing us right now because of his indescribable gift in Christ. And we're going to finish up here in two minutes. Some other helpful truths to remember. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father is in heaven. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, have eternal life. And so each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Thank you for your attentiveness. Thank you for your testimonies. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to help you going forward. But let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being so good to us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for changing our hearts to give you all the glory and all the blessings we receive and all the blessings we can be to others. May we go do this. And may we see the benefit resulting in greater thanksgiving, greater glory, greater praise to you. From thankful hearts, in the name of Christ, our indescribable gift. Amen.